you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The small town of Epworth is located in the southwestern part of North Lincolnshire, England, between Doncaster and Scunthorpe. Its population in 2020 was about 4,500 people. On Rectory Street in the southern part of the town, but at a time outside the village proper, is a largest three-story brick house. In the 18th century, though, an older wooden house sat along the lane. Into this house moved Reverend Samuel Wesley and his wife Susanna. With the couple lived their ten children, one of whom, John Wesley, would go on to found the Methodist Church. When King James II was deposed during 1688's Glorious Revolution in favor of his daughter Mary II and her Dutch husband William III, Susanna maintained support of James. Her husband, meanwhile, was a staunch royalist and a supporter of Mary and William, who had given him a parish at St. Andrews in Epworth and a large wooden house as a rectory. The years 1701 and 1702 were significant. As John Wesley later wrote, The year before King William died, my father observed that my mother did not say amen to the prayer for the king. She said she could not, for she did not believe the Prince of Orange was king. My father vowed that he would never cohabit with her till she did. He then took his horse and rode away. Nor did she hear anything of him for a twelve-month. He then came back and lived with her as before. But I fear his vow was not forgotten before God. In 1702, Samuel and Susanna reunited. It was also in that year that a section of the house was damaged by fire. There was speculation that the fire might have been an attempt by the locals to goad the Wesleys into leaving, Samuel being unpopular in the neighborhood due to his royalist sympathies. The damaged sections of the house were repaired and rebuilt, but on February 9, 1709, the rectory was once more burnt. The Wesleys and their servants made it out of the burning house, all except for six-year-old John Wesley, who had been trapped on the second floor and was pulled out of a window by onlookers. Years later, John recalled the incident when he referred to himself as, quote, a brand plucked out of the burning, when, believing himself to be dying, he penned the epitaph for his tombstone. This time, an entirely new rectory needed to be built, this one being the stone structure that now stands in Epworth. The building of an entirely new house led to Samuel's being crippled with debt. 
The appearances of old Jeffrey, as the family referred to the ghost, began on or about December 1st, 1716. Accounts of its actions must be pieced together gradually through a number of letters and diaries written by members of the Wesley family. One of the daughters, Molly, later recounted the first event known to have occurred. The maid, a woman called Nanny Marshall, who, quote, had a bowl of butter in her hand, ran to me and two or three more of my sisters in the dining room and told us she had heard several groans in the hall, as of a dying man. This was at first assumed to be the voice of a neighbor, a Mr. Turpin, who had been ailing and who visited the Wesley's home quite often. No one was at the front door when it was opened, however. The next day, another servant named Robin Brown was in the attic when he heard behind him a knocking on the attic door. He later claimed to have seen the hand the handle of a hand mill turning on its own. And that night, when he was going to bed, he said that he heard a, a sound like the gobbling of a turkey. Susanna Wesley, one of the daughters, not the mother, recalled other events which took place on December 3rd or 4th. Nancy and I were set in the dining room. We heard something rush on the outside of the doors that opened into the garden. Then three loud knocks, immediately after another three, and in half a minute the same number over our heads. We inquired whether anybody had been in the garden, or in the room above us, but there was nobody. Soon after, my sister Molly and I were up after all the family were abed, except my sister Nancy, about some business. We heard three bouncing thumps under our feet, which soon made us throw away our work and tumble into bed. Afterwards, the tingling of the latch and warming pan, and so it took its leave that night. Soon after the above-mentioned, we heard a noise as if a great piece of sounding metal was thrown down on the outside of our chamber. I then heard frequent knocks over and under the room where I lay, and at the children's bedhead, which was made of boards. It seemed to rap against it very hard and loud, so that the bed shook under them. I heard something walk by my bedside, like a man in a long nightgown. Things were generally quiet for several days, and it seems like it was not until the 8th that the poltergeist once more made itself known. Just after 10 o'clock, according to daughter Emily, she went downstairs for a moment. She had just reascended the stairs when she heard a thunderously loud crash, quote, like a person throwing down a vast coal from the kitchen. She and her sister Susanna looked all throughout the downstairs, but could find nothing. Emily then wrote, that later that same night, as she was preparing for bed, quote, I heard a great noise among the many bottles that stand under the stairs, just like the throwing of a great stone among them, which had broke them all to pieces. Another sister, Mahetta Bell, otherwise known as Hetty, was sitting at the bottom of the stairs at this moment and said it seemed as if something passed her on the steps. It might have been the same night that Emily had another experience with the haunt. According to John Wesley, who recorded these events later, she heard a noise below. She hastened downstairs to the hall where the noise was, but it was then in the kitchen. She ran into the kitchen where it was drumming on the inside of the screen. When she went round, it was drumming on the outside, and so always on the opposite side to her. Then she heard a knocking at the back kitchen door. She ran to it, unlocked it softly, and when the knocking was repeated, suddenly opened it, but nothing was to be seen. As soon as she had shut it, the knocking began again. She opened it again, but could see nothing. 
When she went to shut the door, it was violently thrust against her. She let it fly open, but nothing appeared. She went again to shut it, and it was again thrust against her. But she set her knee and her shoulder to the door, forced it to, and turned the key. Then the knocking began again, but she let it go on and went up to bed. Sometime around December 11th, Mrs. Wesley enters the equation. It seems almost inconceivable that only the children were aware of the ghost until now. It's more likely that the parents simply didn't pay too much attention to the disturbances. After all, Susanna and others of the children said that the poltergeist nearly always started its knockings during Samuel's prayers for the king. As Mrs. Wesley described, Emily came and told me that the servants and children had been several times frighted with strange groans and knockings about the house. I answered that the rats John Maul had frightened from his house, by blowing a horn there, were come into ours, and ordered that one should be sent for. Molly was much displeased at it, and said, if it was anything supernatural, it certainly would be very angry, and more troublesome. Bizarrely, while this statement from Mrs. Wesley implies that she was completely ignorant of the noises, in other places she claims otherwise, saying, quote, It was a great while ere I could credit anything of what the children and servants reported concerning the noises they heard in various parts of the house. Reverend Wesley also seems to have been at least aware of the disturbances, but was apparently, like his wife, not a great believer in them, saying, quote, My wife would have persuaded them it was rats within doors, and some unlucky people knocking without. In any case, the horn procured to frighten off the supposed rats had a different effect entirely. Mrs. Wesley later wrote that, quote, The effect was that whereas before the noises were always in the night, from this time they were heard at all hours, day and night. On about December 20th, Reverend Wesley himself enters the tale. His wife said that when first told, he thought that sounds were made either by the family or some other people. But as I said, the notion that Reverend Wesley was completely ignorant of the poltergeist that at the time had been haunting the rectory for nearly three weeks really isn't very likely. Whatever the case might be, accounts from daughter Emily indicate that from the time the apparently skeptical Samuel was informed, it became particularly active. The very next night, Samuel recorded that he heard nine knocks which, quote, seemed to be in the next room to ours and paused after every three knocks. He then searched every room in the house. Mrs. Wesley recorded the next events, which took place on December 23rd. About seven in the morning, Emily came and desired me to go into the nursery, where I should be convinced that they were not startled at nothing. On my coming thither, I heard a knocking at the feet, and quickly after at the head of the bed. I desired that if it was a spirit it would answer me, and knocking several times with my foot on the ground, with several pauses, it repeated under the sole of my feet exactly the same number of strokes, with the very same intervals. Kezi, then six or seven years old, said let it answer me too if it can, and stamping, the same sounds were returned that she made many times successively. It was at this time that one of the apparitions made itself known. Mrs. Wesley said she looked under the bed, and something similar in appearance to a badger, which Emily thought had no head, ran out and disappeared underneath the chair in which Emily was sitting. Old Jeffrey was quiet on Christmas Eve day, but on the night after Christmas, he appeared once more. According to Reverend Wesley, 
We were awakened about one by the noises, which were so violent it was in vain to think of sleep while they continued. I rose, and my wife would rise with me. We went into every chamber and downstairs, and generally as we went into one room, we heard it in that behind us, though all the family had been in bed several hours. When we were going downstairs, and at the bottom of them, we heard, as Emily had done before, a clashing among the bottles, as if they had been all, broke all to pieces, and another sound distinct from it, as if a peck of money had been thrown down before us. The same three of my daughters heard at another time. We went through the hall into the kitchen when our mastiff came whining to us, as he did always after the first night of its coming. For then he, var he barked violently at it, but was silent afterwards, and seemed more afraid than any of the children. We still heard it rattle and thunder in every room above or behind us, locked as well as open, except my study, where as yet it never came. After two, we went to bed, and were pretty quiet the rest of the night. Recalling the events later, John Wesley wondered if he should have dug up the earth at the place where they heard the falling money, and as an addenda to the manifestations on Christmas night, Mrs. Wesley added, The children were all asleep, but panning, trembling, and sweating extremely. Around 10 o'clock p.m. on the night of the December 26th, Reverend Wesley said that he heard knocking from underneath the bed in the nursery, the same bed from whence Mrs. Wesley had seen the badger-like animal running. He went downstairs to the kitchen to investigate where these sounds were coming from. Then, quote, I went upstairs and found it still knocking hard, though with some respite, sometimes under the bed, sometimes at the bed's head. I observed my children that they were frightened in their sleep, and trembled very much till it waked them. I stayed there alone, bid them go to sleep, and sat at the bed's feet by them. When the noise began again, I asked what it was, and why it disturbed innocent children, and did not come to me in my study, if it had anything to say to me. Finally, on the night of December 28th, Reverend Wesley and another clergyman, a Mr. Hull, vicar of Haxey, maintained a vigil against the poltergeist, with, Re with Reverend Wesley apparently determined to confront it. Hull described the events of, the, of this evening thusly. Soon after, one of the maids, who went up to sheet a bed, brought the alarm that Geoffrey was of come above stairs. We all went up, and as we were standing round the fire in the east chamber, something began knocking just on the other side of the wall, on the chimney piece, as with a key. Presently, the knocking was under our feet. Mr. Wesley and I went down, he with a great deal of hope, and I with fear. As soon as we were in the kitchen, the sound was above us in the room we had left. We returned up the narrow stairs, and heard at the broad stairs' head, someone slurring with their feet, all the family now being in bed beside us, and then trailing, as it were, and rustling with a silk nightgown. Quickly it was in the nursery, at the bed's head, knocking as it had done at first, three by three. Mr. Wesley spoke to it, and said he believed it was the devil, and soon after it knocked at the window, and changed its sound into one like the planing of boards. From thence it went on the outward south side of the house, sounding fainter and fainter, until it was heard no more. After this, old Jeffrey disappeared for nearly a month. It wasn't until January 24th that the knocking sounds began again, during the family's evening prayers. It was also recorded by Emily that Robin Brown, the servant living in the attic who had encountered the ghost early on, 
had seen it twice. It was said that once he saw the badger-like animal encountered earlier, sitting by the fire, and once something which her, fa- which her father described as, quote, like a rabbit but less, and turned around five times very swiftly. Its ears lay flat upon its neck, and its little scut stood straight up, again near the fireplace. Scut is a word referring to a rabbit's tail. I had never heard that word before. After this, the poltergeist vanished once more for the most part, aside from some knocking sounds heard once more during prayers. Reverend Wesley said that he experimented a bit with the wording of the prayers, and found that when he omitted the prayer for king and for the king and the prince, knocking was not heard. When he made these, the knocks came once more. By the end of January, however, the ghost was completely gone. So we come to theories on what exactly was taking place in the rectory. Reverend Wesley seems to have believed it could possibly have been the townspeople, as they had tried several times to get the family to vacate the town. But by this time, the animosity that had existed was abated somewhat, so it seems that this, though admittedly possible, isn't the most likely cause. Mrs. Wesley, meanwhile, believed it early on to have been rats. Again, it might be possible that at least some of the activity was due to animals. Recall that some of the earliest encounters took place in the attic, which is where the Wesleys kept a grain store and which almost certainly attracted vermin. The Isle of Axholm, the section of North Lincolnshire where Epworth is, is located, is a marshy area and was being drained around the time of the, of the haunting. Drainage has been known to cause houses to settle, and it's possible that some of the knocking sounds, at least, were simply that. By far the most common skeptical explanation for the Epworth poltergeist, as with other cases, is that the ghost's annex were the work of one of the house's residents, with suspicion usually falling either upon the servant Robin Brown, who did indeed encounter the ghost several times, and was the only witness to two of the apparitions as well. More commonly suspected, however, is the teenage daughter Mahetta Bell or Hetty. Alone of the Wesley children, she never addressed the ghost in writing, all the more strange since she became a writer later in life. Technically, Charles and Kaziah Wesley never addressed it either, but as those two were the youngest and may have had sketchy memories of the events, I don't really count those two. We don't know exactly what Hetty's age at the time of the manifestations was, but she was somewhere between 14 and 19. One account from Mrs. Wesley, describing the events in which the knockings were heard near her husband's side of the bed, stated that of the entire house, only Hetty was awake. Could Hetty have been hoaxing the events? But in the event of a supernatural explanation, Hetty might still be responsible, though as the so-called focus giving subconscious rise to the poltergeist rather than any conscious effort. Besides the presence of a teenage girl, three of them, actually, the Wesley household featured another common feature of homes that become afflicted by poltergeists, a degree of tension in the household in this case in the form of the political disagreements between Reverend and Mrs. Wesley. After all, the disagreement had led Reverend Wesley to desert his family for a year before he returned. John Wesley, writing years later, said he believed the ghost was Satan's punishment of his father for this desertion. In subsequent years, Old Jeffrey was a commonly referred to thing among the family members, and for years, 
Emily Wesley continued to suggest, at least half-heartedly, that any misfortune or illness that came her way was the work of the ghost. Epworth Rectory, as far as I can discover, is free from any sort of ghostly manifestations nowadays. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, till next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.